I listen to the classic rock radio station here and just like put it on and go about like chores and stuff. But I remember the first time I heard, especially in New York, they're very, very, uh, I noticed like growing up in Chicago and then the classic rock radio station in uh, San Francisco, that was a bit more. That'd be K Fox. Yeah. It was a bit more, they had more leeway with what to play where I feel like, in New York because of the money amount of money it takes to run the station here. It was just always like George Thorogood and Red Zeppelin, you know? And then all of a sudden one day I heard Pearl Jam. I'm like, wait a second, is Pearl Jam classic rock? And I have like very mixed feelings about it. Cause I feel like in a way they are, but it's also, you know, as you were saying, like they weren't like 20 years ago. Pearl Jam especially even more than a lot of their contemporaries. They've they've been dad rock for a really long time. I know they're not like a cool band. Um, I was just reading this Nirvana interviews book and yeah, their, their feud with Pearl Jam was pretty legit, I guess, or real. (laughs) Yeah. It is interesting how things shake out, how Nirvana becomes like, like like that's it. Like you get you get to pick one band from any specific any particular music scene, and and it's Nirvana. Yeah. Did you see the? Um, I did a comic for the New Yorker um, about Nirvana T-shirts. Yes, I did. It continues to be. I guess I'll explain the present premise. But um, I was wandering around, and I was coming back from a trip. So it's about a forty-minute drive from the airport to my house, and. I saw like five different people wearing Nirvana shirts and I like go into a lot of bars and I work in a bar and it's like, I don't really hear Nirvana played out very much. I, I'd hear more like Impala or something like that, you know? So it's like, Oh, this is a fashion thing. This isn't actually, I don't think most of these people listen to Nirvana. Like it just became a fashion thing. Um, so I drew a comic about it for the New Yorker. And then um, actually Nirvana's manager reached out to me and was like, everyone loves comic like we thought it was totally accurate <laughs> so you can't really get any more feel any more legitimate than that i guess i guess the probably the closest comparison is the ramones like how many people were and i love the ramones and i do actually listen to the ramones but like how many people are actually listening to the ramones versus wearing ramones shirts yeah i always felt that way with bad brains there was a period of time i think it might have been like maybe 15 years ago i'd see a lot of bad brain shirts I'm like, I was like you know like and i was the hardcore kid for a bit but it was like even then uh, I like have a bad brains record, you know, but I just saw uh, the amount of shirts to, to bad brains listeners. I imagine also to be not accurate. <laughs> they're not just hardcore. They're like very like idiosyncratic hardcore. Yeah. It's not very often that I sit down and like put a hardcore record on <laughs> to like get home. You know, it's funny. I actually like just in the past few years have re listened to some stuff and some of it sounds really funny but there's a band that I really loved in high school called Los Crudos. They were really great. They're from Pilsen neighborhood in Chicago. And uh, I can still listen to them on the way to work. But there's And I can listen to Minor Threat. I can listen to Bad Moons. But I actually grew up during more of like the screamo kind of grindcore thing in the 90s. And like I can't listen to any of that stuff. No. Still do they'll be like, oh man, I took out this like, and you know, every band has like eight like um, words in it <laughs> in the t- in the band name, and they'll be like, I was listening to blah blah blah, and I'm like, 
no, that's really bad. <laughs> like it's not nostalgic. <laughs> to me. It was an interesting period too. Like I, I want to say like maybe, maybe mid to late aughts where it kind of went like it, it, it went, I almost feel like it went like pop punk in, into emo into screamo. And then everybody turned prog at a certain point because of my chemical romance. Yeah. I mean, my chemical romance was like after my time, like I was more, and the one band I think from, it was more the late nineties for me, but would be like, uh, at the drive-in or something like that. It was more like that. Or the locust or stuff, stuff like that. The locust isn't really screamo though. Is it? I think so. They're kind of noise rock, I always. Yeah, well, they have more of a sense of humor than most of the screamo bands are like, like had no sense of humor whatsoever. So that is a like a kind of a fun prerequisite for emo, like especially you know because emo like ostensibly coming from the hardcore scene, but like yeah, a lot of hardcore bands had had senses of humor. There were a lot of funny hardcore bands. Yeah, there were. Um... I got into like some straight edge hardcore when I was a teenager, which I would like my sense of humor was to like, I was a big stoner. So I would like smoke a lot of weed and listen to straight edge hardcore when I was walking around just for my own, you know, <laughs> fun. But, um, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I like a band with a sense of humor. I think it's, I think it's pretty important. <laughs> I had this experience. I don't know if you did too, but definitely I've had it a few times. I had it. Uh, years ago, I was, I was like, I was, I got laid off and I was, I was freelancing, going through like a lot of depression. And because of all that stuff, I like wasn't really, you know, going out and enjoying all of the things that New York had to offer. And certainly that was the case for the first like, you know, two, maybe two and a half years of the pandemic. And at a certain point, I did sort of start to wonder what was, what if anything was, tethering me to the city anymore well i mean what happened with me actually is uh i just started investigating the city in a different way and i readjusted because i'm a bartender and i readjusted i stopped bartending for a while which is great and readjusted my schedule to be like a daytime person because i live i live on the border of gowanus and park slope in brooklyn so i have the park and my two very different neighborhoods i should say for people who don't live here yeah, I know. Um, but actually kind of becoming a little more similar. In terms Everything's of- becoming Park Slope in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I had like the Greenpoint, uh, Greenwood Cemetery and, you know, the park. And I was just going on these long walks and there was like to-go drinks. And one of the things about being cartoonist in the way that I draw is like I have to kind of sequester myself away and say no to a lot of um, social engagements and people will be like, but you're not doing anything tonight. I'm like, well, it's not about tonight. It's about me needing to wake up tomorrow to draw. That I- That's pretty standard. I mean, it, it is, it's obviously a very isolating thing and it takes, you know, takes weeks and months to finish a book. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, this last one took about, this one took about a year and a half, which is actually really fast for uh, almost 300 pages, but I, like I said, like I was, once I got, I'm, I'm going forward a little bit. Once I got into the project, I just went full steam ahead because I didn't have any competition from like having a life, you know, which I just started to embrace. I was like, there's no FOMO. Like 
in the winter, it was cold. I spent most of it by myself and I would be like, there's nothing for me to do. I can't feel bad about just staying in my bed and like... There's no mo to foe. Yeah. And uh, so I actually felt like I got quite a lot done. And then what I would do is like on my big walk days, I would try to find a block in Brooklyn. This was not hard to do that I'd never been on before. So I'd be like, I'm going to walk to Windsor Terrace and maybe down to like Kensington and like find a weird neighborhood that I've never seen before. And so I started really exploring just different blocks and the visual aspect of the city in a different way than like the more social aspect of the city, which was quite delightful, actually. <laughs> what happens in, Winter, in Windsor Terrace? I've, I know nothing of that place. Um, so Windsor Terrace is right below Prospect Park. So there's like Park Slope, South Slope. And then Windsor Terrace, um, kind of, well, like South Slope, then Sunset Park, but Windsor Terrace is a little further west. And it's pretty much like, um, the parts of it kind of look like the more residential parts of Greenpoint, but a little fancier. It borders, I think, Bay Ridge. So there's some, you know, some old school families, a lot of American flag kind of things. But then there's like a like this one strip that has like, it's almost like a small town encapsulated in one strip because we're like one sushi, one bar, one, you know, fancy restaurant, one Indian spot. And uh, they're all pretty good. So I like to go to the park and there's a one bar I go to called double Windsor down there that I have a lot of friends that work at. So one of the interesting things about the city is that the, so I, I'm a, I'm in Astoria and pretty much have been since I moved out here, but the, especially that kind of no man's land between Brooklyn and Queens is there's a ton of cemeteries there, mm-hmm. you know, Gre- Greenwood obviously being um, probably the biggest, I would guess, in in the boroughs. Well, Greenwood is south. Though I think the ones you're talking about are more like around Long Island City and like Ridgewood or something. Yeah, like Evergreen, I guess, is is, is up there. But what, um, why did you, why did you gravitate toward the cemetery? It's really beautiful. I mean, it's uh, the landscaping there, like because I've been going consistently for so long that I know when they're going to plant certain flowers in certain um, places, they've been growing out the grass because, um, you know, like the Victoria era, like mowed lawns, you know, that just stuck, but um, it's not really good for the planet and for the flora and fauna. So they've been growing that out. So now all these birds are gravitating and then there's all these bird watchers in there and they have programs and they have like film showings and they have like concerts and like there's this bush I always visit in the late summer that always has like a hundred butterflies on it. Um, and I know some of the, the guards, I talk to them. So I don't know. It's like my favorite place, I guess, in Brooklyn. I always bring people there and I always forget to ask, like, are you okay with going to a cemetery? I don't even think about it that way anymore. To me, it's more like a park. None of the things you describe, like all the things that you describe were things that sort of cropped up around the actual grave area well the graves are really great too because i mean there'll be these huge like there's a lot of famous people i go visit like basquiat and there's like the steinway mausoleum and um but there'll be sometimes you know the people who were buried there were very wealthy it was like 1836 they started it so uh, it was a lot of people from manhattan that were like being buried over there because they could have these grand like mausoleums and stuff so like i'll like see a big mausoleum and i like research the name and i'll like learn a bit about Brooklyn or Manhattan history also. That happened to me as well. I mean, I, 
you know, uh, certainly like a more, more touristy spot, but I, but I would often end up in, I would often walk across the bridge and end up in, uh, in central park. It is an interesting thing that happens where, I mean, obviously like we all start to take things for granted, you know, you, you, you can take the city for granted really easily, but, um, it, it did sort of afford people the opportunity to really sort of stop and, and look around and, and recognize all of the history that's really baked into the places we go all the time. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the person who developed Central Park also developed Prospect Park, but like Central Park, everyone, you know, around the country who comes to New York, you know, oh, Central Park, you know, but like, you go to Prospect Park, like it's more casual because it's Brooklyn, but it's just as beautiful, I think, honestly. Yeah. But yeah. So did you, were you able to get like, what was your remedy for that kind of seclusion during that time for yourself? It's not a super original answer, but I I also started walking. But one of the things that I really found that I think goes unremarked upon a lot are the islands and the rivers. Um, I ended up at like Roosevelt, you know, Randall as well, but Roosevelt is, I, I don't know if you've spent any time there, but Roosevelt is a fascinating place. I haven't. I would love to go there. It's fascinating for two reasons. One, one is that it's just, this like self-contained city in the middle of the river. Mm-hmm. And obviously like, you know, it's easy enough to get to and from it. There's a bridge. They've got those, um, you know, the, the gondolas that go over yeah. there from, from Midtown, but also, um, you know, there's the, uh, um, there's a bunch of like influenza, uh, uh, typhoid, like wards there, like typhoid Mary lived on Roosevelt, Roosevelt Island. Mm-hmm. That's where they like stuck her for a long time. So, so that was, you know, there's a lot lighthouse there. I mean, that, that was an interesting piece of it was really kind of going and just, yeah, because you had nothing else to do, just sort of sitting around and kind of finding the story behind, mm-hmm. when, behind these places. Um, you know, I, I wish I had gotten up to the to the to the Bronx a little bit more. Um, the like basically, with the exception of Central Park, like pretty much every large park in Manhattan used to be a Potter's Field. Mm-hmm. That's just where they would bury people. Mm-hmm. I think City Island, all of that's basically like moved up to the top of the Bronx. But it's just this wild thing that like a lot of people don't know that there's. Probably, you know, if you, if you go to like Tompkins or Square Park, Bryant Park, like, or, you know, Madison Square Park, like there's, there's like, there's probably still a ton of bodies buried underneath all of these places. Yeah. You know, I never even thought of that before and I'm sure you're totally, that's true. Um, yeah. So I guess even if you're not at the cemetery and you're going to a park, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> think about that i fully understand why people get squeamish about cemeteries you know i'm i'm generally fine with it but like i I get that it like you know it's you know you don't want to think about death and and it's it's sort of weird to just be around gravestones yeah no i agree i mean for the most part it's always been fine with me and i had a couple times during the pandemic i went and was like i don't think i can handle this today But it's just about whatever meaning it takes on for you at the moment. You know what I mean? Because like I said, like I'm looking at really different aspects of it than I think most people would think of in a cemetery. Again, completely understandable. People wanted to like to be away from death for, for a bit. Absolutely. I mean, we haven't gotten into the book yet or anything, but I mean, that was a big part of my pandemic was just like 
what is the opposite of what I'm doing right now? And, you know, it's like with all that was going on in those years, like it was really depressing on so many different levels. And I was like, kind of went back and started like really embracing the dumber things that I like in the universe. When I say dumb, I don't mean like, like I think comedies are just as important as like dramas and stuff like that. But I mean, like I would be like, I'm just going to watch Bill and Ted and not feel bad about it. You know? And like all those books I've been reading, like I don't care, like whatever. Turn your brain off for a bit. Yeah. And so then I was thinking about like what comic, cause I had done this really like emotional comic and that came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, I need like a reward for having gone through that experience. So I was like, Oh, what's, the opposite of what I'm doing. I was like, oh, it's going on tour with a band. And like, so I map out the entire tour. I'm looking at places they're going to eat barbecue, like how you would go on a road trip. And then I'm just thinking about the road itself in terms of like thinking about my time and bands and shows and my friends and stuff. And so it's like, and like researching, because most of the drawings are from real venues and stuff like that. You know, so my days were really spent because you're really, to me, when I'm doing in a comic, I feel like I'm actually in it. So, it really helped being like, okay, today I'm in Salt Lake city at this venue and there's like some tacos. And I just, that's where I was instead of being where I was, you know, I was reading it on my flight over the weekend and I was thinking a lot about how, how good of, how good of a framing device a tour is, you know, it it just really, you know, it segments really nicely and you can really, you can create a great narrative arc just based on a multi-city tour. I don't know. I mean, it's not super plot heavy <laughs> as you've read it, but it's like what it really is, is a character study. And I wanted to just like drop, it up, drop you in there. And that's like, you're learning about the characters and their relationships as the tour goes, which I actually feel is like the most realistic portrayal because it's like when you're on tour with the band, it's like, you're not really talking about, like you're, you're divorced from your life back home. And so it makes sense to like have a different style, have different types of relationships. Like, and so, um, yeah, it felt like the, the best way to actually show the experience in a more like truthful, honest way, instead of like making it dramatic just for the sake of it. Cause I don't know, that's been done before, you know, the nature of the book. And, and I think this makes a lot of sense is that it, it starts episodic, but then, you do really see these kind of like overarching narrative strands start to develop throughout the book. That's nice to hear. Cause <laughs> actually this is my first like interview I've done. So I haven't gotten any feedback yet. So I'm like, I'd put it on um, Instagram and like, it was kind of like my gift in a way to like, everyone was at home and you're scrolling and you know, everything's like really dark. And then I was like, I just want to do something to make people laugh, you know? And, um, because things can coexist. It's not, you know, I, I think it makes sense that people are very interested in books and everything with like a lot of re- relevancy, but things do coexist and like humor and all these things still happen. And these are the things that art and music being the things that make life worthwhile, in my opinion. So like maybe the only things in my, I mean, I'm with you. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's comics, music, and rabbits. Those are the three things that really... <laughs> this is why we get along. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and I, I did have really good feedback. I mean, I have a very loving kind of small, small group of people follow my work, but I, they, 
right. Thank you. Like, thank you for making this and putting up for free. And it's like a nice thing to break up the feed and humor. So that said, you know, people are like, oh, I've read it. And I'm like, well, no, you haven't really read it because I, I actually um, omitted a lot of it from the uh, Instagram posts because I would make it more like a strip for Instagram as opposed to reading a book where there's like more nuance. And then I didn't even put the last 40 pages up. So, um, so yeah, I have a couple of friends who read it who are like, oh, yeah, it was a really different experience reading the book. I was like, oh, that's really good. Because I did write it for print, not for Instagram. I just edited it for Instagram, you know. And this is not a reflection on you, but but Instagram is not a good place to get um, reviews of your work. <laughs> and it's Insta- like I'm a very new, I think, you know, you know this, I'm a very new relatively speaking, uh, uh, member of the Instagram world, but it, it does seem to be even above like a lot of other social media platforms. It does seem to be a place for everyone to just kind of like cheer each other on and like talk about how hot everybody is and, you know, present like really nice parts of their life compared to like Twitter where it's more, yeah, where it's the complete opposite of that, where it's yeah. just totally taught toxic but it's it's just a lot of like oh here's a nice picture of me and then here's like 50 people saying how beautiful i look <laughs> how hot i am yeah well i mean i think the problems with that too i mean like i i have very instagram is my only social media thing because i have to have one thing you know for art but um i do find the bit of the the editing of one's life to only show the positive aspects to be quite problematic and it's like I think everyone knows that at this point because it is cranking up like the FOMO and like the teenagers being depressed and everything like that. So that's why when I'm actually on it, like I even feel weird sometimes because I'm like supposed to be like, let's say, you know, when I've had acknowledgement for my work, that's positive and I should probably write like I won this award or something. I still like have a really hard time doing that because I know there's someone out there that's going to see it who's going to make them feel bad. I'm like, or like, if I'm in a relationship, like I won't post about that. Cause like, there's plenty of people there that aren't. And it's like, what I want to be on that is more, it's like to make people feel better, not worse about their lives, even through comparison. You know, I both get this sense from you, but also, you know, I, I, as I was getting ready to do this, because like, like you said, there aren't any interviews about this book specifically, but I read the, um, the comics journal interview that, that your mom conducted <laughs> with you. Very, very, very adorable. But also there's, she says something, she, she says, um, something like with you as an introvert and me as an extrovert, the process of trying to, I guess, kind of like really understand you and, and what that means and how that contrasts with her, like that, that really spoke to me. And, and I suspect that that is also a part of not wanting to give every piece of yourself up on social media. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty, um, I imagine most artists and are like this, but, um, yeah, I was I was not very well understood by my family members, but uh, my mom she always wanted to be like a singer and uh, like a dancer, and she did voiceovers for Walgreens, and she she was a teacher, and she would teach interpersonal communication, and she had parties, and just like lots of boyfriends, and I was just like she just couldn't. She would actually get angry at me too. She'd have a party, she'd be like, "Come downstairs," I'm like, "I don't want to." But if you think about teenagers, I'm like, it's not that unusual. That I just want to sit up in my room. I don't want to hang out with your old friends. <laughs> yeah, I want to like listen to hardcore in my room, you know, like a pot on the roof if I can get away with it, you know. But um, I think it was more of a struggle for 
her than for me. But I think what I've done with that kind of experience is like, I hope that it's made me more accepting person of other people because like to be someone who is like the black sheep and to be not understood and to have your kind of things that you care about be seen as kind of negative things. Like in terms of like, I was like a vegan in the nineties when it was like not popular and, you know, just loving different, you know, being a tomboy at the time we were, they would call you a tomboy. I don't know. Now it doesn't really matter, but, um, and feeling like, well, I don't ever want to make anyone feel the way I was made to feel for being my authentic self, you know? So in this way within my family, it's like all kind of turned around at this point where it's like, I'm very much accepted and I, they like my company because I'm like, I'm the only one that's not like giving anyone a hard time. I'm like, well, you just do you. I don't understand what it's like to be, you know, in this, you know, wanting to be in politics or wanting to do whatever they want to do. But I don't have any feelings good or bad about it because it's your journey, you know. But it sounds like it was really a process for her to to understand you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was very frustrating to her. <laughs> I've only like pretty relatively recently in the last couple of years really sort of understood what it means to be an introvert and what it and, and the and recognize the fact that I am one because it was really hard for me to reconcile what I do for a living, you know, like talking to strangers or, you know, like inter- interviewing somebody on a stage in front of like a, a big crowd. But then, you know, I go to a party where I don't know anybody and just like completely shut down in the corner. And I like, I, I couldn't, you know, they cer- certainly this has been a problem with like relationships that I've had because it's really hard to, to reconcile those things. But it's also something that like, I've really had to figure out about myself, um, what it means and kind of how it manifests itself day to day. I think, I mean, I feel like I understand that a lot because, you know, like bartending, you have to engage anyone, right, who comes in. Probably some terrible, terrible, very drunk people. Yeah, it's a real, it can be really difficult. I've had to like learn, and I've been doing this for a long time, but just recently I was like, oh, what if I try inactive listening? You know, it's like when people come in instead of, cause I, it's my nature to like engage and to be, you know, pretty empathetic with people, but it's like, you know, you just can't give away all your energy to strangers. Um, so I'll just kind of like, I'm just do a lot of nodding and stuff like that. But the one thing that when I am, you know, if I'm just out at a party, like I'm not employing, I do employ those same things, but like, I also feel like I'm off duty. So I, I don't know. I don't really like parties very much. <laughs> um, but I also think with you and interviews, I mean, there's got to be some similarity or overlap there because it's like I have a wooden bar between me and the person and a purpose for us both being there, me needing money and them needing a drink. And like, this is a little more honest, but there's still like, there's still a transactional element. I'm not even thinking of it in, in that crass of terms. I'm, I'm thinking of it like for you. Like, like, sure. Like, I do think it certainly applies to being a being a bartender, having to engage with and you know be nice to people you don't necessarily like. But even beyond that, that like, there's two things that you you do that a lot of people wouldn't have the nerve to do. You know, you stand up on stage and you perform music in front of people, and then you make art and show it with the world. And you know, these are I don't know if they're extroverted activities, but certainly they're not something that we would think of as being traditionally introverted. Well, I think that the, and I wonder what your realization as to what a true introvert is, because 
actually, I got this from my mom. And she says, it's about where you get your energy. She's like, I get energy when I go out and talk to people. You get depleted. I have a friend, a very good friend of mine, and we had this whole long, fun conversation about it. And I was like, I think that you're an extrovert. But the thing with her is that she's so shy. So it's like she's a shy expert. So she wants to be around people and, you know, wants to interact and she gets excited. But then she's also so shy and self-conscious that that becomes hard. Whereas I'm completely the opposite where I don't feel I'm not shy. I'm not particularly self-conscious in most social situations. I'm, But it's exhausting to try to make someone else feel good because that's my main whenever I'm with other people like I'm mostly trying to figure out a way to like make them feel good and that's really tiring so it's like I have to then retreat to be able to like take care of myself and feel good so does that make sense is the kind of like it does I also have like pretty I don't want to say severe but I, I definitely have social anxiety like that that's that's a big part of it mm-hmm. you know I, I just have like a lot of anxiety generally. And I think those things like dovetail in a um, kind of in a, in a, in a negative way for me, but the, the, uh, the energy thing does make a lot of sense, you know, and I've heard other people frame it, frame it that way um, of, you know, and, and again, like if it's in, in the setting of a relationship of, yeah, like I'll go to your thing, I'll support you. But like, then you've kind of got to understand that I just like need, I need time for myself afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who, I think for people who don't feel this way, it's like, I know a lot of people have a really hard time understanding it. I do feel this way, and I had difficulty understanding it. Yeah, I've always felt pretty confident about my feelings with it and like what I need to do for myself. But I do have uh, people in my life who don't get it, and I find myself having to avoid them, even though I really like them, because it'll time for me to go or a certain situation that I don't feel like comfortable in um, and that they keep inviting me to anyways. And I'm like, I don't like this type of situation. Like, please don't invite me to this and make me feel bad for not going to it because we can figure out between the two of us to have a compromise and go have a drink at a bar by ourselves and have like a more interesting conversation than spending time with people that you know that I don't particularly enjoy but you don't understand that because you kind of just enjoy everybody, you know? And so I'm like some smudging, but I'm just like, I'm sorry. I don't enjoy everybody. <laughs> just I don't. An interesting experience for me during the pandemic was a genuine fear about how well I adapted to being by myself, mm-hmm. like <laughs> how comfortable it felt. And like, that was like an actual worry. I, I, I you know, at a certain point it was like, yeah, I, I feel like I can kind of do this indefinitely. And I I don't think that that's a good thing. Yeah, I know. Like I have some residual kind of like stuff with that where I don't know if this happened to you, but when I, because I did most of it alone. And then when I started meeting up with friends, like in the park or something, like you bring a drink or lunch to the park and we'd sit six, six feet away from each other. And I could only do about an hour. And I would leave feeling so exhausted. I could barely like deal with it. And then now I'm good. I mean, I don't have that, but I just remember feeling like, oh man, I'm, I'm out of shape socially. I know you're more of a guitar player than, than a singer, but, but even that you're really opening yourself up to people and you're standing, you know, on a stage 
in front of people playing ideally music that you've got a strong attachment to? It's like, I, well, before I'd sang in public before, the first time I sang in public was at a club that's now closed, but you might remember it called Tonic that was in the Lower East Side. It was a very cool place and we we're playing, I can't remember who we we're playing with, but like there's a lot of people there that I just felt really um, intimidated by, like other musicians. I'm like going up there for the first time in front of friends and musicians and singing. And I had a very, a lot of the songs at that time <clears throat> were very vulnerable. And I had like a little breakdown before the first time I was like 22, I think. And I was in a car on the way with my friend Bruno who was playing guitar with me that night. And he, I just, he is also shy and doesn't like being on stage, but he had been on big tours with like opening for like, you know, the white stripes and stuff. So I asked him like, how can I even possibly like, what do you do when you're feeling this way? And he just goes, I just remind myself it'll all be over soon enough. (laughs) That goes away eventually. Right. Well, yeah, so it did go away, but I always have this thing where I'm usually fine until about 15 minutes before we play. Um, and then I, and then I get to the point where I'm comfortable on stage about two songs before we finish, which is actually, I feel come a long way. <laughs> I feel that really deeply, you know, in, you know, cause I, like I, I, in my job I'll do, you know, like I'll do TV, like live TV or again, you know, like, I didn't interview a you know basketball player on stage in front of a large crowd in October, and it's like there there is, and I don't know if, how universal of a feeling this is, but it that it, I could do it a you know an infinite number of times, and still it's still completely unpredictable whether or not I get the jitters, and if so, how much. There's just no way to regulate it for me. Is there? I mean, like, is it easier if you're like somewhat friendly and more comfortable with a person? And then not if you've got a rapport with somebody like for sure, even if you don't know them, like, you know, you can, you can tell, I mean, you know, you talk to people, you get interviewed a, a lot and you know, you, you can tell within the first couple of minutes, generally, you know, if, if the conversation is going to flow well. Yeah. And if people are going to be responsive or guarded or I've had interviewers who were flat out bizarrely dismissive of me, like, uh, I had some really, I had a couple of really terrible ones, but the, almost like I got this kind of like, well, why am I interviewing you kind of thing? And, and then I would look up who they were because they offended me so much. And I'd be like, oh, you definitely wrote your own Wikipedia page about your zine. So <laughs> I don't feel bad. I can't say that every single person I've interviewed for work, I've been like, you know, so like super enamored with their stuff, but yeah. like generally you know, like almost 600 episodes of the show. It's like, I only, I only talk to people for this thing that I do for myself because I think that it's going to be an interesting conversation. Do you get pitched ever? And then you're like, I, I do, I do, yeah. I do. And it, you know, it's a mixed bag, you know, but, but I, but I like, I like, you know, I like, I like having breadth, you know, I like, I like, I, I got pitched recently a, a children's performer. And oh. I was like, I don't know anything about it. It's probably a super interesting world. Like, yeah, I'll totally have that conversation. Oh, how did it go? Because I met a children's performer recently. This just happened in the last day or two, but like I'm, I'm totally into that idea because I like I'm completely fascinated by that world. Like what what draws people to it, and just the kind of the day to day. Yeah, I um, this is a few years ago. I guess it wasn't recently, but 
all relative. But um, I was actually in the airport and I was waiting in the taxi line and I was right behind these two guys carrying all this musical equipment that were like, you know, like vaguely rock, but like not really, you know, it was like, but I was checking out their gear and uh, they just turned to me right. They got a big car. They turned me right before they get into the car and were like, Hey, you look like you're going to park slope, which I actually took as kind of like an insult. But <laughs> you weren't dragging a stroller behind you, were you? Right, exactly. I was like, I thought I looked cooler than that. But, um, but I, uh, was like, I kind of am. They're like, hop on in. So I hop on in with these guys. And like, I know that seems like dangerous or whatever, but it's like, I can really tell for the most part. And I've been right. Knock on wood. Like the majority of my life is like, if people are okay or not. Yeah. I can tell them like the first five minutes of someone being in the bar, if they're going to be a problem, you know, it's like, even if they're not a problem yet. But, um, so anyway, so like these guys are cool. So I'm like hanging out with these guys. I'm like, so where, what's your deal? Like we have all this musical equipment and there there's children performers that were like at the Grammys and they were just telling me all the, um, they had been like nominated for Grammy, um, for best children's and they lost to this person, but I became the interviewer in that situation. I was just like, man, tell me all about this. Like who won? What do you think of them? Are you guys friends? Like you wanted the dirt. Yeah, children's entertainment on the Grammy level. So I found it to be really fascinating. The other aspect too for you is um, that I, I also think like just just the act of like putting not making art but but putting that art into the world is is an intimate thing in and of itself. But also, you know, you mentioned the the book that you had come out at the beginning of the pandemic, which is I mean, it is a memoir. It's not just a memoir; it's like a deeply personal memoir and. Every aspect of that process sounds extremely difficult to me. Yeah, that was not a fun book. I also feel like, um, and then of course it came out right at the beginning of the pandemic when like no one cares about like abortion and about like the choice of having children, you know? I knew it was going to happen with Roe versus Wade. I mean, I didn't know, no, but I was like, this seems like that's where we're headed. So it felt like a appropriate time to do that. But it wasn't fun <laughs> and like doing the press for that fucking blue, you know, there's a sense in which you're, you're opening yourself up for more probing when you write that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm also like not an activist or I just, but that was also what I used to tell people. was like, why did you do this book? I'm like, the reason I drew this book and put myself through that situation is because of all the reasons I didn't want to, if that makes sense. Like shame? Like shame, like fear, and like all the things that I imagine that every other woman and, you know, have been going through in regards to that. And that's never talked about because like, it's almost like saying like, I mean, saying the women and their experience and their lives aren't important, basically. And so if I can like, if I have a small group of people and I don't even care if they read the book or not, but they can look at it because at some point in their lives they may have to go through this and go like, Oh, well I love that cartoonist and she went through it too. And that like makes me feel less alone. So it was like about solidarity, but at the same time it's also about, because I was 35 when that happened, I leading up, that's like the time when you're a woman that you have to be like, okay, am I getting on this train or not? Really? Having kids. Yeah. So it was like, I had been thinking about that for a long time. And then it's like, I just developed this kind of 
feeling of like, I don't know if I think it's a good idea, even like, I don't know how much I'm, I'm kind of a misanthrope. So the human species, I'm like, I don't think we're the best species. I don't think there needs to be more of us. I really don't. I don't think if I had a kid, they probably wouldn't do anything very important. <laughs> like, like, let's just put it all online. Like, I'd love them. Most people don't do anything. Most people don't change the world as much as we like to say that it's at least a possibility. Not that you have to. I mean, I talked to my sister-in-law and she has this thing. She's like, people, you know, like more people, the better. People putting people on the planet is great. I'm just like, I couldn't disagree with you more. I'm with you and, and I'm kind of try to be mindful of the fact that um, that as a guy, I've got a much longer leeway yeah, a much longer runway to just be completely indecisive about it. I mean, like I'm, I know where I am right now with it, but also I could give myself a period of like five or 10 years when I, I, I didn't really know. And I know that like for biological reasons, you're not necessarily afforded that same ability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I feel really bad for, you know, I have a lot of female friends who, you know, are going through it a little later in life and it seems to be going okay, but I wonder how much of that here's me is being judgmental in a sense, but it's not really because I'm also just trying to understand like how much of it is fear-based because you're thinking about like potentially not being able to have this experience that you want, but without actually knowing what the experience is, you know? I know most people go through life and they don't have as many fr- close friends as they used to. You know, I, I know that that's something that I've kind of struggled with and that a lot of other people have struggled with. And th- this is like, you know, if you do, you know, hypothetically, if you do right by your child, then they'll be there to help you when you need it. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's like, I think if you do a really good job, your kids should be like pretty independent and stoked to have their own lives separate from you. That means you did a kind of job, you know? And I always think about like, what is within family? Like what is, what is duty? You know And I mean? It's like, and. Or obligation even. An obligation. And like, <clears throat> I just think it's really open to interpretation because I, things I do out of duty that I feel like this, I need to do this and there's stuff and sometimes begrudgingly, Um, and then there's stuff where I'm just like, you know what? Like, I know that you want me to do this, but like, I just can't do this and I need to have my boundaries too. You know, there's another more pragmatic layer on top of that, which is just like how much, how much of your shit needs to be together in order to feel like you're doing a good job. But, you know, like I have a full-time job that I, I have for a long time. Most of this is a byproduct of living in New York city, but I do think that I don't exactly live paycheck to paycheck, but I kind of like there, there is an extent to which I kind of do. And, and I know that, that living in New York city doesn't, doesn't afford people any kind of safety net. Like I, you know, and, and you know this too, because I mean, you seem to enjoy your job, but you know, you knew that you couldn't just uh, move to New York city and live off of, of art and music alone. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, just recently um, took a position teaching at School of Visual Arts for the fall, and I've never done that before. I've taught workshops and some other stuff, but um, it's pretty nerve-wracking. And one of the things, I don't even know if I should really be saying this on here, but one of the things that I was talking to the head of department was about, and he was like, how, you know, how do I tell these kids, like, 
I want to help them with their journey on this because I know at least there's going to be one kid that I meet doing this that's going to be doing it no matter what the way that I've done it, you know? And when that happens, I don't know. But, like, when I went to school for comics at SVA, I think no one I graduated with actually did anything with it in my year at least. There was a couple other people. But that said, like, most people don't do what their undergraduate degree is anyways. It's more about time to figure out who you are or should be that and gain knowledge so it's like i want to help with that journey and like the journey of being in something and not just thinking about the product and the money that said you're investing a whole lot of money and time into this and what's the thing what's the best advice i can give you my best advice if you want to draw comics is like get a fucking job i think i'm lucky from the standpoint that i've been able to survive as a writer like i do i do you know i write i write for a living uh i'm not necessarily well, I'm not writing, you know, it, what I thought I was going to write, or you know, perhaps in an ideal world, what what I what I would be writing. It's that kind of curse of like getting a job that's like tangentially related to what you do. And I do, <laughs> yeah, like especially in music, because I, I feel like this is more the case in music than comics, uh, but it applies to both of them. That like there's a very limited window that you have to really feel like you can kind of just fully jump into it and, and commit to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I never felt like I had much of a choice. Like I just somehow, I just wasn't gonna, like all, it, there's nothing practical about how I live. It's just not a good idea. And I remember my father being like, this is a bad idea. And I'm like, you know what? He was totally right. But I just couldn't help myself. And I think had I not been on this journey that I continue to be on, I don't think I'd be a happy person because it's just, there's something in me that I needed to do it to prove it to myself or to prove it to everyone else that I could do it for, you know, all those teenage years of being told you're like an idiot or something, you know, like I'm not an idiot. Like I'm actually like, I know this thing seems stupid, but it's like, I I think I could be really good at it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. In In another way, it's like, I do feel fortunate that I've had a kind of like guiding light that has made my life not easy, but it's just like, I know people who's like, they have no guiding light. They have no North star. They don't have a passion. And then they're trying to place that passion on other things and people. And then that doesn't work out. And there's a lot of cycles of like, I think, you know, depression around that. It's like people really not knowing what makes them happy. You know, they're going, I'm not happy. It's like, I don't think you know what makes you happy. Um, And that's okay. But it's like, or maybe you're not supposed to be happy. And then through that, you can find happiness or something. This particular instance of, of the, the SVA thing is kind of, kind of a limited thing, it sounds like. But do you feel like you, 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 you could and, and want to, as you said, live the way you live kind of indefinitely? Yeah, I think it's the journey I'm on. I just don't see it being any different at this point because... I think 10 years ago, I just turned 40 this year or last year. Um, 10 years ago, I felt like, oh, things are going to change. And like, I just got to keep putting the work in. And it's like 10 years later, it's like really nothing's changed. But um, there's a freedom to that also. It's like, okay, so where do I find, if I am still deciding to do this, like where do I find the happiness within it? And where do I find freedom within it, you know? And do I find people I've met really great people and have like, I think friendships for the rest of my life through doing it. And I like being alone. So that's a good 
way to like, I was, sometimes I would, I don't think this is true at all, but I often thought sometimes like I like to be alone so much that's like, I pick something where I have to be. We both meet a lot of cartoonists and, you know, sometimes you'll meet one, you'll like, you'll meet one that's really, really jovial and engaging and like a, is a true introvert from time to time. But the vast majority of people who do this, who you meet, like are kind of built for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For better or worse. I do sometimes see in some friends of mine who are cartoonists and that I, that they can't quite get their head wrapped around, like that there is a life outside of it, <laughs> which can then kind of like make their work more limited. So I was like, I, I would hope also like now I'm thinking about like my syllabus and teaching kids and stuff, and I'm sure it'll change once I actually start doing it, but it's like trying to get them interested in other things and bringing other things into the classrooms. Like I'm going to make you listen to like John Coltrane and I'm going to look at Kandinsky and like all these things have elements that like can be put into your comics and you don't have to like want to be, you know, I think now it's like the YA books are the most popular. So I'm sure everyone's trying to be like Rena Tegelmeyer or something. You know, so it's like you don't have to just mimic other people. Like you can explore within it to find find yourself. But yeah, I mean, it's the same in music that it's just like that's kind of everybody starts there. Everybody starts by imitating the things they like, and if you're lucky, you find out you develop your own voice. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I used to copy a lot of stuff too. I think that you're lucky, and and, and you have something that other cartoonists don't have, in that you have that you do have music like you, you, you know, you, you do make music. Obviously there are plenty of cartoonists who are musicians as well, but it's, there are a lot of ways in which playing music is kind of the antithesis to making comics. I mean, it is not only a very kind of public thing, but it is, it's an intensely collaborative process. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, someone was saying to me, it's like writing a book or writing a comic is like telling a joke that you have to wait years to, find where it's funny it's like you could write a song in a week and by the end of the week you're playing and you can tell if people like it or not and they're clapping you know and you're with them and I always felt like you know there's a lot of different kind of energy in music where there's some people who like to go to shows and like like to hear the band sound like the record right and it's more and I'm thinking about that because like I don't really like that as much because it's like what's the point of being there when I can listen sure to but i feel like if i'm gonna go see elton john i want elton john to sound like the record like there there are people that it's just like yeah yeah and it's there's so many different layers and like gray area within that i'm not trying to say like it's black or white like you have to listen to like free jazz and or like <laughs> you know what i mean but it's like there but what i was why i was bringing that up is i i do think even within that situation of someone kind of playing the record for you you're that person is doing a service of like creating a party and creating a party for like-minded people to go to. So even if it is that, or then there's other people who will challenge you and it's not a party. It's like you sit at the Vanguard and it's like, this is serious. And like, I'm going to, and I, I love both experiences. Um, but yeah, it's just totally opposite of cartooning. And uh, I'd say the majority of my social life because is around musicians. Um, and I, I think they have a real hard time understanding like the cartooning thing like they respect it a lot but i when i'm telling them it's like you don't understand like i have to draw for five hours a day in order to read the book for like two years and i can't take days off because then take a day off here take out like then it's six months later 
and this project that I can't afford to like spend more time on is push. It's like, you just have to be so diligent where it's like, because you are relating, you know, when you're playing music, it's like you have other people who can do work for you. You know, it's like I show up with a song, like you guys can do that. You guys can take care of like, uh, you know, helping load the space in and out and paying the bills and booking the shows. If you're lucky to have band members who will do any of that. But um, with this, it's like all you and to like, to be able to do it. It's like, you, you have to be so diligent. And I think you can practice, especially with rock and roll. It's not like you're, you're, you know, like a, a flutist for a symphony or something where you do have to practice five hours a day. It was like rock and roll. It's like, you can practice a couple times a week, record two week sessions twice a year and do a couple month long tours. And like the rest of your time is totally free. You know? I think one thing that you really got to um, that, that you portrayed in a, in a really nice way, another difference between cartooning and music is, you know, you make a book and if people don't like it, then it's entirely on you. But with, you know, this comes across in, in the book, you know, if there's a bad show, like, it's a shared experience of having had a bad show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and also, but you can, um, I guess there's people who have personas within writing and music. Um, let's say you write a song, though, and it's like layered and you think it's about a relationship or you think it's about, you know, a sunset or something like that. It can have like these very uh, underlying meanings and code, coded meanings. Whereas I think with art and like, well, the way I draw, it's like, there's no good meaning. It's like, I'm talking to you. And it's like, if you don't like, it's not just a song you like, it's not a chord progression you don't like. It's not like a vocal thing that I can't control. It's like, you're telling me in a way, it's like, you don't like me, you know? But that's the risk you take, you know? I assume it's also a different experience writing a memoir and writing a book like this. Although like, I don't know, I think maybe you have a bit of an analog in the band. Um, or maybe somebody that you're probably a little bit, you know, closer to as a person than, than the others, but it, it, it is. And obviously everybody who reads the book, like assumes that it's just about you or that it is, you yeah. know, like thinly veiled autobiography, yeah. but that's different too. Right. I mean that there, there's something about, I assume there's something about writing a memoir, a deeply personal memoir and potentially having people not like it. That is, that cuts even deeper than doing a fictional work. It does. But I mean, <clears throat> I think I have actually pretty thick skin. Like I was, when I'm saying that, it's not because I've had like a lot of problems with that. I also have this very reactionary personality where it's like, if you tell me like you loved it so much or something, I'll be convinced that you're lying. And if you hate it, then you're an idiot. So it's like, <laughs> you can't really, I'm just going to be, you know, in my brain about it. And it's going to pretty much stay there. And yeah, I do get like little, but I've taught myself to get like a little excited about some small wins. Cause I think that's what you kind of need and why not be, you know, get excited from time to time, you know? Yeah. I, I relate to that really deeply. And, and I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but something that I've really had to, to work on and get better at is, um, is, is accepting compliments. And like in, in the instance where somebody says, this was my favorite thing, their favorite thing of mine that I wrote. And I'm like, Oh, that thing was shit. Or like <laughs> I've written a hundred, like a hundred things better than that. Like, like take, take the fucking compliment, you know, and don't tell them that they're an idiot for liking that specific thing that you made. I know it's hard to not like 
have the disclaimers going. I've, I've tried to learn that too. And I, I've actually, I think I've gone so far in the other direction where, you know, I remember someone saying, came up to me and they're like, Hey, congratulations for this thing or something. I just went, thank you. <laughs> Cause it was like the only thing I could say, think, you know, it's just like, I want to say that's a fine thing to say. Like that's a perfectly acceptable. I mean, they took it really well though. Cause they could tell I was like, thank you. And then they started laughing. Really <laughs> yeah. That, that you were holding something back. Yeah. Like, Oh, do you have anything to say after that? Like, Nope. <laughs> I accepted the compliment and I'm proud of myself. There's something that you said that really jumped out at me and that I, that I think really speaks to this, most of the conversation that we've been having. She asks you about your work and being an artist and you say, uh, it's a terrible life. It's a terrible lifestyle, but fun too. Every day I'm peaceful, odd, humiliated, and deeply sad. <laughs> yeah. It's a great quote, and it really touches on all of these things. Of even doing the thing that you love and you feel like you're put on this earth to do is is a constant struggle. It's absolutely true. Yeah, I just, I guess I'm so used to that up and down every day. You know, I know that sometimes like there's been years of my life like anybody else's, right? That you're like, oh, 2014 was like the worst year of my life, you know? <laughs> and like, but when you're kind of manic, it's almost like being manic depressive every day as an artist because like then you'll get excited about something that you're drawing, like this is going to turn out great. And then like a half an hour later, you your wrist fails you and you have to redo it or you put the wrong color down and you're angry at yourself. So it's like, all day, just up and down and up. Or you're like, this entire thing was bullshit. This is terrible. Nobody's going to like it. Or at least that's a struggle that I have a lot. Oh my gosh. Yeah, me too. Whenever I finish a book, I'm like, what was the word? I can't remember exactly, but it boiled down to a sentence like this that would recur in my mind. Like, like why did I do that? <laughs> like, what made me think I could do that? And right now, because I'm in the middle of like, you know, an off period, because I'm, I'm you know, I'll start writing a new book soon. And I was thinking to myself about how I will start it. And I thought about, and I wrote it down in my journals, like I have to give myself permission to keep doing this sometimes. And that's, and, and go like, okay, what if I want my next book to be about something silly or what if I'm going to go dark and like people aren't going to like it. It's like, I'm going to give my permission, myself permission to take that journey and that's okay. Okay. 